Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. I don't like your attitude. I definitely... The defense is wrong. Don't think that guy just said, boom, thank you. Tuesday edition of the PFTPM podcast, my cousin Vinny edition. We give out awards. We hand out verdicts today. It's MDS. It's Mike Florio and MDS. I, I you're a, you're a my cousin Vinny aficionado. If you say no, we're going to cut the connection right now. I am a big my cousin Vinny fan. I somehow just started thinking about my cousin Vinny randomly this morning uh, when uh, I think it's when the Ralph Macchio character uh, says. I've heard your parents argue and they're amateurs. And I just, I've always loved that, that like he understands what real arguing is in a family and his family does it so well. Yeah, I tell you what, I came from one of those families, uh, especially as it relates to my mom. And I think I got a little bit of that. But we may or may not have arguments today before we get to the awards and the best of your questions. A couple of news items, you know, they're Often aren't news items on a Tuesday afternoon, but today there are. And we're going to begin in Carolina, where Cam Newton, the quarterback of the Panthers, has been placed on injured reserve more than seven weeks after suffering a foot injury. Well, aggravating the foot injury. He suffered it in the preseason. He rushed himself back for week one. They had the short week game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, lost to the Rams on the opening Sunday, lost to the Bucs, and then Cam Newton ended up out. He admitted that he had essentially hid the severity of the injury from the team. He hasn't played since, and now he won't play for at least eight more weeks, and that puts us into the postseason. And by then, if the Panthers make it, I don't know that you want to go back to Cam Newton. I think the goal here is shut him down, let him heal, and then in the offseason MDS, a decision will have to be made about the future of Cam Newton in Carolina. Yeah, and to me, that's really the most interesting part of all of this is not just is Kyle Allen the quarterback for the rest of this year, but is Kyle Allen the quarterback of the future and the, and the Panthers? And if he's not, that still might not mean that Cam Newton is the quarterback of the future. Even if Kyle Allen doesn't play well the rest of the way, maybe the Panthers decide to draft a quarterback, to sign a different quarterback. Cam Newton has one year left on his contract at a, at a salary that's affordable by uh, NFL starting quarterback salaries. I mean, it, there are plenty of teams that could trade for him get his salary under the salary cap in 2020 and then work on either a long-term deal or franchise him the next year. Now we're getting two years ahead, so maybe that's a little too far, but it's a really interesting question. And it is in fact possible Cam Newton has played his very last game as the quarterback of the Carolina Panthers. His salary for next year is downright cheap in comparison to current starting quarterback standards. $18.6 million. They have a $2 million cap charge for option bonus proration, a $500,000 workout bonus. So the total cash payout is $19.1 million. And if there's somebody else 
out there that wants him, it really is an affordable contract. And I think one of the big factors will be what will owner David Tepper do after the season? There was a very telling moment in the All or Nothing series when Tepper explains in the last episode, the league is set up for teams to go 8-8, and and it's up to them to push it north of that or south of that. And a franchise quarterback is key, but getting a good coach, getting a good GM is a difference maker. Well, David Tepper didn't buy the Panthers for the privilege of employing Marty Herney as GM and Ron Rivera as head coach. He inherited them. If he decides after this year it's time to make changes and go out and maybe try to buy an upgrade at either or both spots, those new people, general manager and or head coach, may want their own quarterback. They may want Cam Newton for one more year. They may want their own person. So there's decisions that need to be made after the season that are going to be influenced by how the Panthers do the rest of the season that will have a major impact, MDS, on whether or not Cam Newton is with the team in 2020. Yeah, and David Tepper has not owned the Panthers for long enough for us to have a good idea of how patient is he with his football people. Is he going to be the type of owner who believes in his guys and gives them a long time to build a team? Or is he going to be the type of owner who says, if you don't impress me this year, you're gone next year? And if it's the latter, we could see all kinds of changes in Carolina. And I would also throw out, David Tepper is really rich, even by NFL owner standards. Um, the you know the when, when you get into the many billions, it's sometimes hard to even wrap your head around how rich he is. But suffice to say, cash flow isn't an issue for him. He doesn't care how much is still owed on Ron Rivera's contract, that type of thing. He doesn't care how much he would have to pay to maybe lure a. a uh, one of the best coaches who some people think are, are retired or a coach out of college or whoever he thinks is the right coach for him, he can spend the money easily to get the right coach for him. So it's one of the most interesting situations to monitor. Um, he might also be a coach who would tell his general manager, I want you to spend a lot of money on a free agent quarterback and your job hinges on impressing me. And so you know, it, it'll be really interesting to see, but there are a lot of ways that the Panthers franchise could go this offseason. One last observation as it relates to David Tepper. He was a minority owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, and he's a Pittsburgh guy. And Kevin Colbert, the GM of the Steelers, is on essentially a year-to-year arrangement with Pittsburgh. He could leave the Steelers after the draft and join David Tepper in Carolina if that's what Tepper wants. And you mentioned retired coaches that are out there. Bill Cower has been out of the loop for so long, we don't even think of him as a potential head coaching candidate. I think one of the reasons he quit when he did was because he knew he was never going to get true market value in Pittsburgh, and I think his plan initially was to eventually come back and get whatever the most money is for coaches in the NFL. I don't know that Tepper would give him that, but maybe that's a spot where he could be lured to come out of retirement if that's something that Tepper wants. But you're right. It all comes down to what Tepper wants. And he did not buy that team because he wanted to say, I have on the payroll Marty Herney and Ron Rivera. They just happened to be there when the new boss arrived. We've talked about Cam Newton. He was drafted in 2011 first overall. He has a league MVP award on the shelf. A guy drafted in the third round in 2012 has a Super Bowl MVP award. 
and he's back under center, at least he will be, when the Jaguars emerge from their bye week because Minshew Mania fizzled out at the right time for Nick Foles. Foles will start when the Jaguars come back from their week off, which makes sense. Look, they played it the right way. You ride Gardner Minshew as long as you can. And the sixth-round pick from Washington State did well until he had four turnovers in the fourth quarter against Houston in England, and that is that. Minshew back to the bench, Foles back on the field. At least they know they have a competent backup in the event Foles gets hurt again. But Nick Foles finally gets a chance, MDS, to earn his money. It was interrupted rudely week one when he fractured the collarbone against the Chiefs, and now he'll be back when the Jaguars try to turn around a 4-5 and five start. They're in striking distance in the AFC South. Whether or not they get there depends upon whether or not we see some more magic from Nick Foles like we did in January of 2018 and then late in the 2018 season into January of 2019. Yeah, and Gardner Minshew has certainly exceeded expectations in his half season now as the starting quarterback, but I don't believe he has done enough to justify a complete upheaval of the franchise, which is what it would be if they were to say, this quarterback that we just signed to a big contract this offseason, we're already deciding that our young sixth-round pick is better than him, and we're going with our young sixth-round pick going forward. I just don't think that would be wise right now. I think you have to give Nick Foles more than half of one game, which is all he has played so far, to show that he can be worth that kind of money that they gave him. And as you said, they're still in the playoff hunt. Uh, in the AFC South, they could still win the division. They also could still earn a wild card in the AFC. This is looking like a year where maybe nine and seven is all it's going to take to get there. Nick Foles obviously has a track record of playing well in big games. Um, so the Jaguars are still hoping they have some big games ahead of them. So I think it's the right call. I think the Minshew story has been a lot of fun. It's been one of the one of one of the really most fun stories that we've had in the NFL this year. But if you're asking who gives them the best chance to win the AFC South, I think it's Nick Foles. Yeah, and I agree with you, especially after what we saw on Sunday. And and it essentially was a week to week thing for Gardner Minshew. They were going to go with him as long as he had the hot hand, but the moment the hand cooled off, and this is the perfect time for it, it gives Nick Foles two weeks to get ready to return to action. And the Jaguars still very much alive. And Minshew did enough that it's not like he's getting benched. It's not, it's not like that the big giant hook is coming out and yanking him off the field. He, yeah, he had a he had a bad game, a very bad game against the Texans, but Foles is healed. Let's put Foles on the field and let him earn that money, and then they'll make whatever decisions they have to make after this season or after next season. They got Minshew under contract for three more years beyond 2019, so they can go with Foles for a couple of years and then transition to Minshew if they think he's making the improvements necessary. He's already captured the hearts and the imagination of the folks in Jacksonville. It's not like they're going to revolt against the idea that Minshew was benched. What's your argument? He didn't throw five interceptions. He didn't have five turnovers in the fourth quarter of that game. It's not like there's going to be an uprising, and we see what Foles can do. All right, it's time to transition to the awards for week. Now, before we do that, though, I'd like to point out that you should be checking out, if you aren't already, the Chris Sims Unbuttoned podcast for a couple of important reasons. One, the Thursday episode of Chris Sims Unbuttoned during the season is a joint episode of Unbuttoned and PFTPM. So once a week, it's me and Chris doing all the picks straight up and against the spread. 
and best bets. And this week I'll point out that I was two and one in the best bets. He was one and two. So I've caught him and we are even through nine weeks. But he breaks down film every Wednesday for the What the Bleep Happened edition of the podcast. This week he will go inside the Raiders goal line stand to beat the Lions, how Andy Reid beat Mike Zimmer and how the Chargers befuddled Aaron Rodgers. Also his Monday podcast breaks down how Lamar Jackson got the best of Bill Belichick. So check out Chris Sims Unbuttoned Monday, Wednesday and Thursday and particularly on Thursday when it's a joint episode of PFTPM. All right, let's get on to player of the week. MDS, as always, I will give you the floor for your selection. Best player of the week for 2019 week nine. Well, I have to give some credit to one of our loyal PFTPM listeners who actually hit me up on Twitter with uh, this suggestion. I'm going with Buccaneers wide receiver Mike Evans. And one of our listeners, who's a, a Buccaneers fan who lives in the UK, by the way, uh, mentioned, and and I looked at the stats and, and thought he was absolutely right, Mike Evans has now had three games, including Sunday when he had 180 yards against the Seahawks, three games when he has played well enough that if the Buccaneers had won, everyone would have been talking about Mike Evans, probably would have been one of our players of the week, maybe the official NFC Offensive Player of the Week. Um, and because the Buccaneers lost... I think Mike Evans has been a little bit overlooked. This was actually Mike Evans' third game of the season with at least 180 receiving yards. No one else in the NFL even has two this season. He already has three. And the three games were that last-second crazy loss where uh, Bruce Arians screwed the whole thing up and took the delay a game and they missed the field goal. There was that crazy loss to the Titans where the Buccaneers got robbed of a touchdown or they would have won the game. And there was Sunday against the Seahawks in overtime. You could switch three plays in those three games, none of which Mike Evans was even on the field for. And if those plays had gone the Buccaneers way, they would have won all three of them. And we'd all be talking about, man, Mike Evans is just having an insane year. He's led them to these three big wins, but just through, through no fault of Mike Evans, The Buccaneers lost all three of his biggest games this season, but I want to credit him. He had a phenomenal game, 180 yards against the Seahawks, looked like the best player on the field, but unfortunately his team didn't do it. And the Buccaneers have the ultimate pick-your-poison passing game because Evans' big games have come when Chris Godwin didn't have a big game. Chris Godwin had big games early when everyone was focused on Mike Evans. Eventually, defenses figured out we should cover Chris Godwin, and that opened everything up for Evans. And it's funny, if you compare the games side by side, Chris Godwin goes from 121 against the Panthers the next week to 40 against the Giants, and Evans goes from 61 against the Panthers to 190 against the Giants. And they match up that way where one of the two has a big game pretty much every week. So who are you going to try to shut down? And I have a feeling now the pendulum may go back the other way after 198 and 180 the last two games for Evans. Godwin has had 43 and 61 the last two games. So that's a good choice. And that's a guy who, because he's very quiet, and I mean ridiculously quiet, I interviewed him the day he got drafted, and I was stunned at how soft spoken he is, how little he has to say. If you're going to interview him, you got to be ready with your next question because his answer may be yes. And you got to go right in and try to engage him and draw him out. He's gotten a little bit better over time, but he is very reserved. He doesn't seek to promote himself. And he has become one of the very best receivers in all of football. That's a good choice by you. And, you know, he shouldn't be punished by the fact that the team has won uh, or has not won when he's had those big games. 
My player of the week is a guy who was on the other side of that equation in the Buccaneers Seahawks game and who continues to have a stellar season 118.2 passer rating with a showing that maxed out at 133.7 on the passer rating scale Russell Wilson 29 of 43 five touchdowns 378 yards 8.8 yards per attempt no picks for the year 22 touchdown passes and one interception you know I'd I wanted to be kind of like you circumspect and let's find somebody who doesn't get the credit they deserve but Russell Wilson had an incredible game and Russell Wilson continues to be a shortlist MVP candidate and Russell Wilson reminded all of us that especially in overtime look he's going to step up his game they're going to miss the field goal that would have won the game in regulation and not covered the spread fine we'll take the ball in overtime we'll drive down the field we'll score the touchdown and we'll cover the spread in the process and thank you for that Russell Wilson, because that was one of my best bets of the week, the Seahawks minus 5.5. So Russell Wilson, after that Ravens game a couple of weeks ago where he had the boneheaded pick six to uh, Marcus Peters in Peters' first game with the Ravens, he's rebounded nicely, and he's right back in the thick of things for NFL MVP and, in my view, player of the week, and he most likely will be the NFC Offensive Player of the Week. Five touchdown passes, ties a career high, and the Seahawks 7-2. and two. And without him, MDS, I don't know what they'd be because that defense was not good on Sunday, and it hasn't been good all year. Yeah, and that is the big change with the Seahawks is early in Russell Wilson's career, although he certainly played well right out of the gate, it was really the defense leading the way and, and the running game leading the way. And Russell Wilson didn't need to take the team on his back and win games by himself. And, and that has really changed a lot in Seattle. That defense is not good right now. And uh, there may be a reckoning down the road at some point where a team with a good offense just does so much to that Seattle defense that there's nothing Russell Wilson can do to keep up. But so far this season, I think he's a very strong MVP candidate because without him, as you say, that would not be a good football team. And with him, they're one of the best teams in the league. He has really done probably more individually for his team than any other player in the league so far this season. And this was part of the strategic effort back after the 2017 season to tear it down and build it around Russell Wilson. There were a lot of veteran players on the team that the Seahawks parted ways with systematically after Super Bowl 49, but culminating in post-2017. Guys who resented him, guys who never really accepted him, guys who felt like he was too much of a company man. Remember the story from Mike Freeman of Bleacher Report that there were guys who thought Russell Wilson wasn't black enough, whatever that meant. I mean, that was always hovering around. They mocked him for his Go Hawks comment that he makes at the end of every interview and press conference. Although I've interviewed him twice in the last year and he did not say Go Hawks at the end. So maybe he's matured past that, but he's in charge of that team now. Not that it's immature to do it, but maybe he's just gotten to the point where how many times can you say Go Hawks in your life? The bottom line is it's Go Hawks indeed with Russell Wilson as the center of the universe at $35 million a year, and they're filling out the roster around him. They've got some great receivers. They've got Josh Gordon coming. They're going to do what they can defensively, but they really have made that team all about the offense, specifically Russell Wilson plus Chris Carson leading the way in the running game. All right, rookie of the week time, MDS. Who's your selection? Well, I'm going to go with another player from that Seahawks-Buccaneers game that had so much great offense in it. And that Seahawks wide receiver, DK Metcalf. And as I was watching how well he was playing on Sunday, 
I couldn't remember why did this guy last until the 64th pick of the draft, the very last pick of the second round. And I, I went back and looked at what people were saying about DK Metcalf. And, you know, after he ran his 4-3-3-40 at the Combine, people, the, the kind of draft commentators were all talking about, this guy's a top 10 pick, first wide receiver off the board. And then just slowly but surely, the the tone of the commentary on DK Metcalf shifted. And it's, well, but his three-cone drill was really slow. And, well, if you watch his college tape, he really didn't run very many routes. He just kind of had the one go route and didn't do much else. And by the draft, he didn't only fall out of the first round. He almost fell out of the second round. And as it turned out... I think everyone was right the first time. This guy's a really special athlete, extremely fast, extremely strong. I think sometimes that three-cone drill doesn't necessarily mean a lot as far as the way a wide receiver moves in space when he's got the pads on in a game. And he looks like a really special receiver. He's leading all rookies in receiving yards so far this season and had an outstanding game, really his best game yet against the Buccaneers. Yeah, and I recall vividly that there was a belief he would make it all the way to round three, and if the Seahawks hadn't traded up, he very well might have made it to round three. The concern was durability. The concern was that limited route tree, and I remember at some point in the offseason, he posted a video running an out route and saying he's working on the other routes, and frankly, it was not the crispest, cleanest out route you could imagine. There was a lot of looping at the top of the route. It wasn't that that really sharp cut to the outside that would leave a defensive back in his path and uh, regardless it's working in the game working with Russell Wilson it's working and he's playing really well and and you know what that's all that matters I remember Jerry Rice was regarded as too slow coming out of Mississippi Valley State well it's one thing to run the 40 in underwear it's another thing to put a pad or pads and a helmet on and run under the football while it's in the air. And there was nobody who ran like Jerry Rice when it was time to go out and run on the football field during a game. So that's a good pick. And DK Metcalf quietly emerging, not so quietly anymore, as the best receiver from the rookie class of 2019. All right, I'm going to go with Josh Jacobs. He had 120 rushing yards and a pair of touchdowns and a close win over the Detroit Lions. He's been the engine for that offense. A lot like Dalvin Cook with the Vikings, where the quarterback has flaws. And if the running back is getting it done, the quarterback looks a hell of a lot better. In Oakland, it's Derek Carr. In Minnesota, it's Kirk Cousins. But Josh Jacobs, a first-round pick, the only first-round running back this year, a guy that the, the Raiders have planned all along to use until the, the wheels come off. He's got 152 carries through eight games, another 11 touches catching the ball. He's on pace for over 320 touches for the year as a rookie. He's on pace for 1,480 rushing yards. He's averaging 4.9 yards per carry. So he's doing very well, and he was one of the big reasons why the Raiders ended up knocking off the Lions. It was a game that the defense had to stiffen at the goal line to salvage but Josh Jacobs, Alabama running back, who didn't get used, overused like a lot of Alabama running backs do, got a lot of tread on the tire, and they're burning some of it off this year, and that's what they had planned to do. Marshawn Lynch's replacement, Josh Jacobs, doing well for the Raiders. He's my Rookie of the Week. Yeah, and, and he arrived in that pick they got from the Bears in the Khalil Mack trade, and of course now they, they also get the Bears' first-round pick next year, which as of today would be the 10th overall pick and you're starting to see that maybe the Raiders had a better plan 
for building that team to kind of be on an upward trajectory when they get to Las Vegas than a lot of people gave them credit for. You know, it, it, it'll it take a long time before we can fully assess the Khalil Mack trade and all the other things that John Gruden and now Mike Mayock are doing in Oakland and next in Las Vegas. But we're starting to look at this franchise a little bit differently. I think last year it was real easy to say John Gruden screwed everything up in his first season. This year we're starting to look at him and saying, hey, they got some young talent. They got more draft picks on the way. They got a bunch of cap room next year. I think they'll have a better cash flow for Mark Davis to be spending money once they're in Las Vegas. Uh, I actually think there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic about the Raiders going forward. And Josh Jacobs, undeniably, is one of those reasons. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I still think they should have kept Khalil Mack. I think you use those lottery tickets at the top of the draft to find Hall of Fame talent. And when you find it, you, you don't trade it in for more lottery tickets. And also, we know very well, you can find running backs any round of the draft. There's plenty of guys out there that could they, they could have plugged in and given the ball to the way they're giving it to Josh Jacobs, and that guy would be having a big year. He just happened to be, to be the beneficiary of landing with a team that is committed to making that first-round draft pick a workhorse tailback. Now, he's got the skills. I don't want to take anything away from him. He is my rookie of the week. But I think from a roster management standpoint, they'd have been better off keeping Khalil Mack, not getting the draft pick paying Khalil Mack, and then they could have gotten running backs elsewhere in the draft. Or if need be, maybe trading, you know, if Josh Jacobs slips out around one, you trade up a little bit in round two and try to get him. You wouldn't have to trade up very far based upon the 4-12 and record last year. All right, before we pivot to Coach of the Week, let me point out that Peter King's podcast is available weekly wherever you find your podcasts. On Wednesday, his latest episode will include visits with John Harbaugh, the Ravens coach. Peter talked to him from the locker room after the 37-20 win over the Patriots on Sunday night. And also Packers running back Aaron Jones, one of those forgotten guys from the class of 2017, which has produced so many great running backs. Aaron Jones twice this year has been the NFC Offensive Player of the Week. So Peter talks both to Harbaugh and Aaron Jones coming up on the Wednesday edition of the Peter King podcast. All right. Speaking of coaches, John Harbaugh could be a candidate for Coach of the Week. Who is your Coach of the Week for Week 9 MDS? Well, I'm going with Andy Reid, who I really think showed something this week because so many teams, when they lose their starting quarterback, they just fall apart. And, and a lot of the time, that's an excuse for, for a coach who doesn't succeed as well. What can you expect? He lost his starting quarterback. Andy Reid lost the league MVP, Patrick Mahomes, replaced him with a guy who was out of football last year in Matt Moore, and they still beat a good Vikings team on Sunday. And, and I think you have to give Andy Reid an enormous amount of credit because if you had told me before the season, hey, Patrick Mahomes is going down and the, the Chiefs are going to be, you know, they, they already lost their first backup quarterback to a preseason injury, they're going to be down to a guy who wasn't even in the NFL last year at quarterback. I would have said all of a sudden the Chiefs are going to implode and you know the, the Raiders or the Chargers or the Broncos are going to win the AFC West if they can get to nine and seven. And it's not happening that way at all. The Chiefs have played very competitively ever since Patrick Mahomes went down in that game against the Broncos. And I think more than anyone else, Andy Reid deserves credit for that. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And I spoke to Matt Moore after the game on Sunday. He said he had some opportunities to 
play in 2018. None were the right fit, but the moment that he got an inquiry from the Chiefs, he knew that was the right fit. He wanted to play with Andy Reid. He'd never been in Andy Reid's system. He'd been in some West Coast offenses, but not Andy Reid's offense, and he raved about Reid. He he had so much confidence in the game on Sunday because they had the perfect game plan. They have the perfect scheme. They have the playmakers where Matt Moore can trust what he sees and just throw the ball and not hesitate, and it worked out well. Andy Reid was my coach of the week last week because he didn't give in to the temptation to play Patrick Mahomes, even though they lost. This week, he earns it with the victory. One and one. Hey, and you can't ask for much more than that. One and one in a pair of tough home games against two great teams from the NFC North. And the Chiefs salvage that victory. And who knows, maybe we'll see Mahomes this weekend against the Tennessee Titans. My coach of the week is a guy who, when I first saw his name, I wasn't quite sure how to pronounce it. It was the Roger Goodell effect. Remember that back in 2006 when we first started seeing Roger Goodell as a candidate to be NFL commissioner? A lot of people were like, is, is that... Goodell? Is it good? What is that? And it's Shane Steichen, and I'm not 100% sure I'm getting it right, but I think I heard it pronounced Shane Steichen. He's the new Chargers offensive coordinator. And on the fly, to be thrust into the gig of running the Chargers offense, coming off of a victory at a time when there could have been a lot of dysfunction and issues and problems, and why the hell are we doing this, and why do we fire Ken Wisenhunt? They just all systematically picked apart the Green Bay Packers defense and won the game 26 to 11 and uh just an incredible outcome probably one of the biggest surprises of the year I'd say that game the Ravens losing to the Browns especially given what we know now and the Jets beating the Cowboys to me are the the three biggest shockers so far of the season but the the, 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 just the sluggish and lifeless Chargers most of the year they get it together and they take apart a red hot Packers team and Shane Steichen gets a lot of the credit for putting the offense together that was able to shred the Packers defense MDS yeah and he is 34 years old and he kind of fits that profile of these young offensive coaches who make some uh, interesting play calls, some interesting game plans, maybe some things that a lot of people uh, are not expecting. And that's exactly what everybody is getting excited about in the NFL right now. These younger offensive-minded coaches who have new, fresh ideas about how to make a game plan, how to call plays. And and I think it's going to be really interesting to see if he can keep it going because you, you would probably look at him and say, well, He's years away from having the profile of being a head coach. But, you know, Cliff Kingsbury didn't have the profile of being a head coach. Sean McVay was thought to be years away. Matt LaFleur, people didn't think, was ready to be a head coach. And then these all these young guys with offensive backgrounds are just what teams are looking for as head coaching candidates. So this is a guy we didn't even know how to say his name last week, and I won't be surprised if Pretty soon, we're talking about him as a future head coach because you're right. He did a really good job, and the Chargers really dominated that game in a way I don't think anyone saw coming. Let me add this caveat, though. It's one thing to emerge as a highly competent offensive coordinator. It's quite another to be sufficiently groomed and prepared to be a head coach. Exhibit A, Freddie Kitchens. He was never groomed to be a head coach. Do you think Greg Williams spent any time last year when he was the interim head coach teaching Freddie Kitchens how to be a head coach? Tony Dungy told me on PFT Live last Friday that Dennis Green spent four years 
grooming Tony Dungy, who was then the defensive coordinator of the Vikings, to get him ready to be a head coach. He tried to show him the issues he would have to deal with, the decisions he would have to make, the way it works when you're selecting personnel, when you're putting together a draft board, when you're deciding whether to bench a quarterback. He involved Dungy in all of that, and it got Dungy ready for being a head coach. And he said, even then, when I became a head coach, I didn't know what I was doing. So that's one thing we need to really keep in mind as we flag these head coaching candidates. And, and I'm as guilty as anyone because we see a hot coordinator and we say, ah, head coaching candidate. Has that coach really been groomed? And if I'm somebody who's asking the questions and evaluating the candidates, I think one of the questions that I delve into thoroughly, what has been done for you at your current place of employment to get you ready to be a head coach? Why do you think you're ready? How have you been groomed? What have you done to prepare yourself for this? And I have a feeling those questions were never really asked to Freddie Kitchens. All right, uh, before we turn this into let's dump on Freddie Kitchens even more edition of PFTPM, let's move on to call of the week. MDS, what do you have? Well, it's kind of an interesting call that the NFL made that I, I think maybe not everyone even watching Monday Night Football noticed this. But the NFL made the call to recognize the 150th anniversary of the first college football game. The very first game was on November 6th, 1869. It was Rutgers beating Princeton 6-4. to It was in New Jersey, so the NFL said, hey, we've got a game November 4th on Monday night, also in New Jersey. That's the closest game to the date of the anniversary. It's in the same state. Let's have the players wear their college decals on the helmets. And so I like that call, but I just thought the NFL should have done more with it because it's like they've been beating us over the head with their 100th season thing. And then they did just kind of this half-hearted recognition of the 150th anniversary of college football. I thought the decals, first of all, just should have been bigger. You could barely even see them on the guy's helmets. Um, and also, why not do it league-wide? Why not also have it in the Sunday games, let every player in the entire league, and maybe, you know, tape some vignettes of guys, you know, what college football meant to me. Hey, you know, I was the, the first in my family to go to college because I got a football scholarship. You know, there are, there are literally hundreds of players in the NFL who have a story like that. Why not make a little bit bigger of a deal out of it in this year when they're trying so hard to make a deal out of the NFL 100 thing, I just thought they could have done more with it. So I, I like the idea of recognizing the, the first ever football game. I mean, that's a that's a big deal in the history of the sport, but make a bit a bigger deal out of recognizing it. Yeah, and I don't disagree with that at all. I just happened to notice that little decal on the back of someone's helmet. It's like, is that a college logo? And then I kept watching and I it's like I saw a couple more and I'm like have they been doing this for a while and I just missed it why haven't I noticed this sooner and I you know I think back to Sunday so much is going on we're watching the the games on a big board and maybe you would miss that nuance and it was just one of those oddities and you would think the NFL would would do more to suck up the college football given that the NFL views college football as its free farm system and they benefit tremendously from college football taking in a lot of high school players with potential and separating literally the men from the boys and and getting the best of the best ready to go. And even then, even then, 
it is very difficult to discern which are NFL caliber and which aren't. But without that four years of finishing school where college football players major as a practical matter in college football, you can't make that separation. And the NFL loves having that available. And the other thing, too, is one of the reasons the NFL loves the college football free farm system, MDS, they know that they wouldn't make any money if they had their own minor league because if they thought they would make money with their own minor league, they'd have their own minor league. So I'm surprised they didn't do more. I agree with you. Uh, and uh, even at a time when there's heightened sensitivity to the the way that that uh, college football players aren't compensated and the resistance of the NCAA and the NFL's complicity in keeping these players in college for at least three years after their high school classes graduate, I still thought the NFL would do a, a fuller embrace of college football, unless the NFL just doesn't want to give up any of the spotlight on its 100th season, even if it means a little shred of recognition for college football's 150th. All right, my call of the week, and this goes back to the Vikings game. This is unrelated to the Chiefs offense. This is related to the Vikings offense, and this gets back to the conversation about which coordinators are ready to thrive as head coaches and which aren't. Kevin Stefanski, who looks a lot like Negan from The Walking Dead, he's a guy who interviewed for the Browns job last year. Freddie Kitchens was given the job instead. And there's a belief, especially after an incredible month of October for the Vikings offensively, that Kevin Stefanski will be one of the shortlist guys to become a head coach in 2020. And I'll say, let's wait and see what happens the rest of the way, because I feel like that narrative that has emerged in Minnesota over the past two years where Kirk Cousins becomes hyper-aware of a big game, grips the ball a little bit too tightly, was overthrowing open receivers on Sunday, that manifested itself in the way Kevin Stefanski handled the final two drives when the Vikings were up 23-20 with less than eight minutes to play, and they had a horrible drive, and then another drive when it was 23-all with two minutes and 30 seconds, another horrible three and out. But the one call I want to focus on and when you have the guy who is the reigning player of the month in the NFC, who has put together incredible passing numbers this year, when you have the ball third and 13 on your own 25 and you're up three, if you don't trust that guy to throw the ball, if you are going to run a draw play on third and 13, the message is you know that this guy has limits on what he can do. And you know that in those big spots, you can't trust him. You can trust him on first and 10. You can trust him on second and seven. You can trust him on third and four, but you're not ready to trust him on third and 13, the way other teams trust franchise quarterbacks on third and long. And that to me was very telling. I'm not saying it was a bad decision. Obviously it didn't work. It would have been a better decision if Dalvin Cook had gotten the first down, but that is a very revealing decision as to what the Vikings think of Kirk Cousins and nothing he's done in the last month with that incredible passer rating and the yardage and the average per attempt and the completion percentage none of that has caused them to change how they view Kirk Cousins when the chips are down and the spot is big and the game is significant and the opportunity is there to take it they didn't trust him MDS to take it and that's going to be the thing that causes the Vikings to lose on Sunday night at the Cowboys and quite possibly causes them to miss the playoffs altogether. And, you know, when you have the ball and you're up 23 to 20 in the fourth quarter, the best way to win the game, make it 30 to 20. You score a touchdown there, you're going to win the game. And, and there are too many coaches, I think, in the NFL, head coaches and offensive coordinators, who are thinking so much about, we can't get a turnover here, 
We can't even have an incomplete pass that stops the clock. And, and they don't think about the, the upside of scoring a touchdown when you're up three, which is you're pretty much guaranteed to win the game, especially these days when onside kicks are almost impossible to recover. You get up two late in the four, two possessions late in the fourth quarter, you're pretty much assured of winning the game. And th- th- there are too many coaches who coach out of fear. They're afraid of what can go wrong instead of trying to do what's right. And I think you're very right that the Vikings being afraid suggests that they still believe their quarterback, who was maybe the best player in the entire NFL for the month of October, they still believe that when it really comes time to win a game for us, he's more likely to throw an interception than to throw a touchdown pass. Yeah, and uh, that's not changing, and I don't see it changing anytime soon. And the only way it is going to change is if Kirk Cousins proves it on Sunday night against the Cowboys. And here's the key. In a big spot, I don't know that they're going to give him the the uh, the choice to prove it, or the chance, rather, to prove it. All right, um, before we move on to questions, and I have a hard out today because I got a Cole Beasley interview coming up, so we, we can't uh, dilly-dally and ask and answer a bunch of questions. I do have to mention two things. The first is this, because there's no other setting in which I can say this. The... The quote from Dean Spanos, the owner of the L.A. Chargers, regarding the goofy report from yesterday that there has been discussion at the league level of the possibility of moving the Chargers to London. Dean Spanos, apparently employing Chris Sims as his PR executive for these purposes and these purposes only, had this to say. And this comes from a blue checkmark tweet from Jason Hirschhorn. I'm not familiar with Jason Hirschhorn, but I'll defer to the blue check mark. The full quote from Chargers owner Dean Spanos on the report of a potential move by the Chargers to London. It's total fucking bullshit, said Spanos. We're not going to London. We're not going anywhere. We're playing in Los Angeles. This is our home. This is where I'm planning to be for a long fucking time, period. End of statement. Dean Spanos. I, I think I've just become a Chargers fan, MDS. Yeah, that's one of the all-time great owner statements. You know, he I, I guarantee you that's not something the team PR guy wrote for him. That's that's coming from him, from him and him alone. Team PR guy would be afraid to tell an owner to say those words. An owner has to do that himself. Yeah, that that is awesome. That is excellent. And you know what? Yeah, you could say that our national discourse has coarsened and it's become vulgar and profane. Well, you know what? I can tell you who started it. We're just finishing it. And before we finish today's pod, and that was as apolitical as I could possibly be under the circumstances. Let me point out this. You can improve visibility and save money at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Stop by for their See Better Drive Safer sale, where you can earn a $15 gift card after mail-in rebate when you purchase either Sylvania headlight bulbs or Bosch Focus or Trico Titan wiper blades. They'll even install your wiper blades for free while you wait. Don't risk your safety because of poor visibility. Let the professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts help you find just what you need. O'Reilly Auto Parts, better parts, better prices every day. All right, time to move on to some questions. And let's start with our good friend, Tom Marshall, otherwise known as a Red Zone Alk. He's a big fan of the site and the NFL. He lives in the United Kingdom. He asks this question, MDS, is there a more improved quarterback this year than Lamar Jackson? 
I don't think there is. And the reason that I really think Lamar Jackson's improvement this year is so special is that nothing he's doing feels like a gimmick. Nothing about it feels like, well, yeah, that's a, you know, that's a college offense that NFL defenses aren't ready for. Give it a few weeks and, and teams will have a good feel for how to stop this offense. It, it really doesn't feel that way to me at all. It feels like Lamar Jackson is succeeding because he's a unique talent and there just aren't defenses positioned to stop him. And uh, he, he's really been phenomenal this year. You know, last year, he and Joe Flacco, you could have made an argument either way about who really should have started if the goal was win week in and week out. I mean, they went with Flacco to start the season. Flacco got hurt. They went to Jackson. And then even when Flacco was healthy enough to play, they stayed with Jackson. But at that time, it seemed more about building for the future than about the present. But right now, Lamar Jackson is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, and you could not have said that before. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And, you know, it felt like he was the he was the risk. He was the roll of the dice when the Ravens circled back into the bottom of round one. He was the guy about whom there were the most questions, and now he's clearly the best of the bunch as we get to year two of the 2018 quarterback draft class. All right. Uh, let's go on to the next one. Mike likes dirt. Hey, Mike's if the saints win the super bowl and drew Brees retires, wouldn't the saints be the best place for Tom Brady to go on a one year deal? MDS, I'll let you have that one first. Uh, that would certainly be fun, but I don't think Tom Brady wants to go into a situation where the team just won a super bowl and had the heroic franchise quarterback who decided to walk away. I think Tom Brady will still be the Patriots quarterback next year. But if Tom Brady does, in fact, leave in free agency, I think he's more likely to go to a place where he could start a second legacy of his own. I don't think he'd want to go to New Orleans. I think he would want to go somewhere where they are desperate for a Tom Brady. I don't know where that is. I also think it'll be interesting to see how much money he's going to command. Would he insist on going to a place that has a lot of money to spend because uh, he he so badly wants to make up for all that lost time, all the years he's given the Patriots a good deal? Uh, there are teams with a lot of cap space next year. Interestingly enough, the, the team with the most cap space next year is the Dolphins. Wouldn't that be something if he stayed in the AFC East and made a pure money decision with the team that has the most to spend. I don't think it would be New Orleans. Look, here's how I look at it. Tom Brady isn't going to make decisions next year based upon how much money he could make. He could name his price, though. Look at how he moves merchandise. He's still got the best-selling jersey in the NFL, and everybody who was ever going to have a Tom Brady jersey has one. I guess they've worn out and they've bought new ones, or they've gained weight or lost weight or grown from children to adults. Whatever the case may be, you get him on a new team, and that's immediately the number one jersey and will be the number one jersey for the entire year. He can name his price. He can write his ticket. I just don't think he's motivated by that. He's going to want to, if he leaves New England, and I don't think he's going to leave New England. Shefty was pushing that a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if he's doing Brady a favor, if he's doing Don Yee a favor, trying to drive up what the Patriots have to pay him. That would be my suspicion. But if Brady's going to leave, he's going to look for a place where the deck is stacked in his favor. 
where he can win another championship. So he can say to Bill Belichick, I can win without you. You can't win without me. If he would leave, because it's not going to be a happy divorce. If there is a divorce, it's going to be cantankerous. It's going to be contentious. I'll say all the right things, but there'll be a fire burning in Tom Brady. He's not going to want to go to a crap team and make a bundle of money and, and get satisfaction in his paycheck when the team is two and six. So, I remember a couple of weeks ago when this all first came out, I looked at all the options for next year, and the one that stood out to me was the Saints because they've got the defense. They've got the coaching staff. They've got Michael Thomas. They've got an offense that's good enough to complement Tom Brady. The question for the Saints will be, if Drew Brees does retire, do you cast your lot with Tom Brady when Teddy Bridgewater could walk away as a free agent and make a lot of money, possibly as the replacement for Tom Brady? in New England. So it's a delicate balance because I think if they would bring in Brady for a year or two or three, and if he's going to play till he's 45, it could be a three-year thing. What does Teddy Bridgewater do? He's not going to continue to hang around indefinitely as the backup to whoever the high-end franchise quarterback is that the Saints bring in. The other team that intrigued me was the 49ers. Now, this was before Jimmy Garoppolo had a great game last Thursday night against the Cardinals, but you could make the argument, and we'll see how the season plays out, that the 49ers are great not because of Garoppolo. They can get out of Garoppolo's contract easily after the season. It's a $4 million or so cap charge. They have until April 1 before the salary next year becomes largely guaranteed. They could bring Tom Brady home and plug him into that team that is just incredible. And that so that one intrigues me as well. I saw a report last week from Jason Lock and Ford that the Chargers would be a possibility, but I just I don't see it. I don't see it because Tom Brady would have to think that this is a team that is in position to seriously compete for a Super Bowl. And if you jump into the division with Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, you're not going to have the benefit of that weak division that you can run roughshod over. And not that the Saints are going to run roughshod over anyone in the NFC South, but that would be the next division. You bad Tom Brady to the Saints, and that's the closest thing you're going to have to an AFC East situation next year, I think. So the Saints make a lot of sense. First, he'd have to want to leave. I'm with you, though. I don't think he wants to leave. All right, let's move on. Uh, Dean Osborne, 42, is the Black Cat a better option as the Giants starter next week instead of Eli? I, I, look, the Black Cat thing was funny. Daniel Jones is the guy. And MDS, I'm going to twist his question around into something that, that I think is far more intriguing. Do you believe that at some point in December, Eli Manning will get a Joe Montana in San Francisco, Tony Romo in Dallas style, one or two final starts on his way out the door as the equivalent of a gold watch and a thanks for everything. We're going to let you play one more time before we float you on an iceberg. Yeah, I could absolutely see that happening. I think the Giants might reach a point where they feel like Daniel Jones has done enough to get that in-game experience that we wanted him to have as a rookie now what we really want is for him not to get hurt as a rookie. And we would like to have some reason for our fans to come to a game in December. So why don't we let Eli Manning go back out there and show what he can do one last time. If, uh, if he wants to play in 2020, it can be an audition for some other team. Uh, it'll be an opportunity for our fans to cheer the guy who won two Super Bowl MVP awards with our team, I think there's a pretty good chance that he does get that send-off. Because, you know, the truth is, the Week 17, it really only matters to teams that are still fighting for the playoffs. And we've seen that 
teams that have either already clinched the playoffs or are already mathematically eliminated, as we think the Giants will be, it, it just doesn't matter. So why not do something fun like let Eli Manning start again? And I know that the counter to that will be you give Daniel Jones every possible rep so he can prepare for next year. But from a business standpoint, you want people to show up. Even if all the tickets are sold, you want them to show up and buy stuff. No shows cost you money because they don't buy things. An empty seat isn't going to spend $15 for a beer or $10 for a bag of popcorn or whatever the prices are at MetLife Stadium. You want people to choose to come. And during the holidays, good luck with that. Bad weather. You got other stuff going on. The team sucks. Are you going to show up to see one last game that doesn't matter? Or are you going to show up for one last time number 10 is under center? You're going to show up for that they'll fill the stadium for that and that's why I think at a minimum he'll be on the field week 17 when they host the Eagles and maybe week 15 when they play the Miami Dolphins depending upon what the Giants do between now and then all right couple more and then I gotta run how about this one Wolvie 58 aka Sue Duff what is the likelihood that OBJ to the Patriots could happen I suppose I like my pie in the sky MDS what do you think You know, I don't see that happening because I think if the Browns were to trade Odell Beckham, they would do it only when some team offers them a big package. And I think the Raiders, the the Patriots are a team that buys low and sells high on a player like an Odell Beckham. And, you know, you remember I started to say Raiders a second ago because I was already thinking about that. Patriots trade with the Raiders to get Randy Moss. The thing that was amazing about that trade was that was only a fourth round pick that they had to give up for Randy Moss. That's the type of trade that Bill Belichick wants to make. And I just don't think the Browns would give up Odell Beckham for a, you know, a mid round pick to the Patriots. I think if the Browns would trade Odell Beckham, it would only happen when some other team can give them a package that at least comes close to what they just gave up to get him. Because if John Dorsey turns around and dumps Odell Beckham for far less than he spent to get him, he looks real bad, and I don't think he wants to look real bad. Yeah, I remember the Patriots already have given up a second-round pick to get Mohamed Sanu. So, you know, maybe you give up a 2021 first-rounder to get him if you really want him. First of all, the Patriots have to decide whether or not they really want him. You bring Odo Beckham Jr. to town, it's either going to work incredibly well or it's going to be a disaster. There's no middle ground. I feel like at some level, Odo Beckham Jr. is craving an organization like the Patriots where he knows Everything is taken care of, and all I have to do is go play football, and he'll shed all of this other extraneous crap like, am I wearing an expensive watch? Am I wearing fancy cleats? Do I have a a visor that conforms to what the league requires? All of that crap maybe goes away when he gets locked into a program where it's clear to him that they are at the level he wants to be, and it's clear to him it has to be through eight weeks. He's not at a program that has anything close to being the overall level of quality that the Patriots have. So the Patriots have to want him. But secondly, the Browns would have to know when to pull the trigger. And you're right. There may be another team out there that would give way more than the Patriots would. But I think this time around, I think Odell Beckham Jr. would have more say. 
he'd have that de facto Antonio Brown veto like he had when he blocked the Buffalo trade. I mean, this comes down to whether or not Odell Beckham Jr. is going to take the initiative and be kind of a jerk, be the guy who says, this is what I want. I'm taking it to Twitter. I'm going to be Antonio Brown, not to the same degree, but I'm going to push this and I am going to direct where I want to go. You're not just going to dump me on some team without asking me. You're going to ask me and I'm going to approve it. And I'm going to get a new contract as part of it. And that's how it's going to be. I mean, if he can have that kind of control, then he could maybe engineer his way to New England. I just don't know that the Browns are going to be ready to do it after only one season. I think maybe after two seasons, they would do it. I think the Browns are too stubborn to cut the court after one season, even though MDS, I don't see it being any different. After this year, I really do think that at a certain level, there's a little bit of Shaq and Kobe going on where the town isn't big enough for Baker Mayfield and Odell Beckham Jr. And I think there's some tension there that hasn't fully been exposed yet. Mayfield not throwing him the football, Beckham saying things publicly about not getting the football. I just, you know, there's a book to be written at some point about the relationship between Baker Mayfield and Odell Beckham Jr. And I have a feeling it's not nearly as good as they thought it would be. Yeah, and it's so interesting that, you know, a comparison like Shaq and Kobe, people can put up with a lot when you're winning championships like Shaq and Kobe did. The Browns, they finally have guys with enough talent that they feel like, hey, I should be the star here, but they're still not winning like you should have if you have a collection of talented players. And to me, the Browns in some ways, almost feel like more of a mess now than they felt like the last couple of years when they were far and away the worst team in the NFL. Because at least then you said, okay, yeah, they stink, but at least they got a lot of draft picks and a lot of cap space, and you can see how they can be a good team pretty soon. Now they stink, and they've used those draft picks, and they've used that cap space to get talented players and it still hasn't turned into a good team. And you, you really wonder where this is going to end up. It, it's kind of amazing that we're still talking about the Browns like the most dysfunctional franchise in football when we had thought that they made enough moves over the offseason that we, we at least wouldn't be saying that anymore. Would they be in the playoffs or would they only be 6-10? and 10? But I don't think anyone thought they would be among the worst teams in the league, which it's looking like they may well be. Yeah, and they have a tough game this weekend against the Buffalo Bills. And I really think they've got to run the table to have a comfortable shot at getting to the playoffs. Maybe they could lose one more if they get some help and if things fall their way. Nine and seven may be very difficult in the AFC. Ten and six may be mandatory. Remember, there's been 10-win teams that haven't made it. There was an 11-win team, the Patriots, the year that Tom Brady had the torn ACL. They were 11-5 and and they didn't make it. So there are no guarantees. They're mired in third place in the division. We'll see how that plays out. All right, MDS, I got to run. Cole Beasley is calling momentarily. That gives us a, a hard out so I don't keep you any longer than I need to or any longer than you want to. That's a full hour and five minutes or thereabouts of PFTPM. We handed out the awards. We answered the questions. We addressed some news of the day. And I'll be back Thursday with the joint PFTPM Chris Sims Unbuttoned podcast, PFT Live on Wednesday morning. And if you go to profootballtalk.com, you'll see his byline. You'll see my byline all day long, every day of the year. ProFootballTalk.com. We'll keep you updated on everything happening in the NFL. MDS, have a great day, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you soon.
Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Three great words. Free Fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bottom up, up, up. Bell one time on Friday. Participating McDonald's through 12 31 24. Excludes tax. Must opt in rewards.